Hi, my name is Amar. I'm a senior econ student at Case Western. And hey everyone, my name is Zach and I'm a first year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine. And welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. This week, we have Dr. Jaya Burbank, a physician entrepreneur. She is a founder of Mpulse, an app that enables users to buy services for a person experiencing homelessness from nearby nonprofits, as well as a boutique consulting firm for high tech in hard science. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And so like to start, we'd love to explore like your early formative days that may have shaped your like unique perspective and uh, what brought you here today. So could you tell us a little bit about maybe like the environment, the place you grew up in? Sure. I, I have a very unusual story, so please don't try and copy this. I grew up off the grid in a fundamentalist religious commune, um, and I left the commune at about 18. I, I wasn't quite suited for polygamy, so <laughs> I was reading the encyclopedias, trying to play everybody chess and talking about Dostoevsky, and people were like, you have to go to university, but there was uh, no money, so I, uh, I was the only girl in the valley that could do seven pull-ups, and I got a job as a forest firefighter, and that paid for my school. And then I was, uh, I worked with ex-convicts gang intervention and mostly ex-football players um, for about nine years. And I, I tell people that I was raised by fundamentalists and firefighters and they cancel each other out. And it's pretty much true. Wow, that's ex- it was an extremely interesting starting career path. Did you have any like mentors or people that you like wanted to follow when you were like growing up looking at careers? No, it was uh, for me, I never even considered being a doctor till I was about 26. So I was um, I'd done a lot of firefighting and I was realizing that I wasn't going to be able to keep doing it forever because I was much smaller than most of the men I worked with. There wasn't very many women. I was one in 22 men and a lot of them were ex-Marines, you know, very big framed men. And the weight on my joints was pretty extreme. So I, I could keep up with them, but it wasn't the same toll on my body. Um, so I was looking at alternate careers. I knew that I could probably do well at university. I looked at environmental design first. I went through the phone book in the snowboarding town. I was a ski bump for a winter. And I went through the phone book and looked at jobs in that town that I really liked that I could do. I thought that these are intellectual enough that I'd be stimulated, but they're, um, but they're also available in these smaller towns. And so I came up with rural family doctor or um, community college professor. And I didn't know anything about either career. I didn't have any mentors in either one. Um, I hadn't actually seen a doctor until I was like in my late 20s. Like uh, I didn't grow up with around, you know, regular medical care. Um, I did read the book Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, and I think it secretly influenced me and I highly recommend it. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant analysis of what it's like to be a physician and sort of the training process and some of the disillusionments you experience, which I didn't understand at the time. But now looking back, it, it was good preparation. Um, yeah, so I went to become a paramedic. I wanted to see if I liked patients first, and I really glad I did that. A lot of doctors don't know if they like patients until they've graduated med school, and it's far too late by then to figure it out. <laughs> there are medical specialties you can do if you don't like treating people. Like um, some people do pathology or laboratory science or research, but um, if you like people, it's a lot easier. And so, how did you choose between community college professor and like? <laughs> Not, this is I thought I thought there was less politics in medicine and I was like I'm not good at politics so I'm gonna go do medicine and I, I knew no, that tells you I knew nothing nothing at all about being a doctor 
or hospital life or anything because there's way more politics than medicine it's like game of thrones so you got to be like you got to be a saint (laughs) and uh, i i thought tenure professor was tougher but i i if i had to go back i would say surgery is the the worst toughest politics i've ever seen in the world because the or is a very conscribed land it's like you know it's a tiny little country and everybody's got to get along there and be there at the same time so i ended up being fairly good at politics yeah, and I just, uh, as you were mentioning, like surgery into the OR, once people know that you're in med school, a common question you get is, what specialty are you going into? And we were wondering for you, was that ever a question? Or like, when did you kind of figure that out? I was very underprepared. I think that um, because like 90% of the admissions to med school are children of doctors, I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm exaggerating that statistic, but it's very high. And so a lot of the people that come into med school are already prepared by their parents as to what specialty they want. They've already had a exposure to the gamut of specialties. They know what they're choosing not to have and what they're choosing for. I was so bewildered by the whole thing. I decided I would put it off till I was in the hospital and had, had had a chance to rotate through the specialties. So I didn't really know until the end of third year. And by then I was like desperately in love with plastic surgery because in my childhood, I grew up doing embroidery and taxidermy. One of my first job was as a taxidermist and I was worked for a national champion taxidermist. Um, it, nobody's going to know this, but I used to be really good lipper and clipper. So in other words, I was very good with fine detailed sections. And um, when I saw plastics for the first time, I had assumed it was cosmetics, like, you know, breast implants and stuff. And when I saw like reconstructive surgery, microsurgery, I fell in love um, over the top. I had an earring business too, which helped with the microsurgery, but it was a bit too late to be honest. I didn't have the connections. I didn't have, I scrambled to get my electives in place and I wasn't able to show this like super serious focused intent on plastics that they wanted to see in the residency applications. So did you sense like a a sharp contrast between you and some of the like other med students who maybe didn't have to overcome some of those class barriers? Yes. And now I, I never went to med school with anybody who didn't have a really interesting origin story. Like I think everybody had, you know, even people from like super, like super, like supposedly generic or median, median lifestyles, um, just were really interesting people and fully developed. So I really loved the quality of my classmates. That said, um, I think I was one of, out of 300 people, I only was able to identify one other person who even came close to being from below the poverty line. So the class barriers were pervasive and all-consuming and unrecognized. And uh, that person was indigenous um, Native American from the far north, and they struggled socially as much as I did. Because uh, something people don't realize is what class markers tend to be internalized as pathology in medicine, especially as you get into the hospital and a lot of your patients you're treating are from lower class or um, below the poverty line. And so then doctors tend to associate indicators of class with indicators of pathology and they're not the same thing. So I had physicians tell me in my training, you shouldn't be a doctor, you should be a nurse. And um, you identify more more with the patients than you do with the doctors was one of the critiques. And it was a legitimate critique I I did because I had more in common with the patients. I was kind of wondering, what do you think can be done in the healthcare field now to overcome those barriers? I think the biggest thing that could be done would be to allow nurses to progress from their career into medicine in some way. Right now there's a a ceiling. So I was strongly encouraged heading into medicine, but first off, I was discouraged by everybody I knew from going into medicine. It was, 
I was considered to be going off the map, which I was for my class. Um, second, uh, I was in, encouraged secondarily. They were like, well, then just become a nurse because it, it's a less uh, economic investment. The time, the risk, everything's much lower. And you can be a nurse. Uh, you're a woman. You could be a nurse. It'll be good. And I was like, yes, but I, I, you know, I'm very academic. I like textbooks. I'm quite intellectual. And, and so um, if I'd listened to them, I would have ended up in nursing. And I saw in training a lot of people in nursing who probably should have been physicians. They had more of the mindset for physicians, which is an, an aptitude for decision making, I would say, is, is, is what differentiates a nurse from a physician. Physicians, like, if you take it, all the class and everything out of it and gender, then physicians have a job of making a decision. And they, you know, if, if medicine is paths and nodes, uh, physicians are the nodes where decisions are made, forks on the road. And nurses are the path. It's that simple. And so some people are physicians and should have been nurses and vice versa. And if you allowed nurses to progress into being a physician, you probably see a lot less class distinctions. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel like in every other career, you can start off as like an entry level accountant and then one day become the CFO, right? So, you know, why is that a barrier in medicine where? a nurse that's been a nurse for 20 years can't label themselves as a like physician now. It's a model of the military. Uh, enlisted men can't, can't become officers. It's a model of this very combative idea. You know, medicine in the 18th century used to be about trauma and it used to be about infectious disease, both kind of combative. Now it's preventative medicine. It's you're looking at obesity, metabolic syndrome and substances that we buy. You know, it's alcohol that we drink, tobacco that we smoke food that we eat that makes us fat. So um, this is not combative anymore. Coming back to uh, your time like in med school, uh, we see like a trend now that currently for a lot of competitive specialties, gap years are becoming more common. You mentioned you were interested in plastics. Uh, when you went to med school, what was your experience with uh, you know gap years and what did you see at the time? So I, um, once again, I was naive to the culture. I, I thought that I could take a, a year after medical school and before residency. And, um, and do high tech. And I did do, I was very successful. I went to Stanford. I did a preventative medicine program. Um, I launched a network for a thousand physicians to provide 24 seven telemedicine in 2014. Um, and then I it included a million, I was emailing a million doctors a, a week with that, with that website. And so despite that success, when I went back to medical school, the doctors were profoundly, um, unwilling to accept that experience um, because I hadn't done bench research, which was clinically acceptable. And I hadn't gone straight into residency. They were super friendly to, to gap years in residency, like a couple years in taking a year off to go do residency. So if, if I was to do it again, I would have matched your residency first and done the gap year during residency. And so in like tech, there's a conception that like tech is like the closest thing to a, the true meritocracy. You know, what's the degree of truth to that? And is it like the same way in maybe like medical tech or healthcare tech? Interesting. Um, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, there's two factors that play into tech. First off, um, there is a, a lot of regulated stuff about gender when it comes to the practice of medicine. There is no regulations on gender when it comes to venture capital. So women founders are pretty much never going to get funded. I mean, you can get founded. The, the stats on single solo women founders is like 1% um, compared to men. So, and those numbers haven't changed despite all the attention toward it. 
So if somebody's handing you a blank check to go throw away in the trash, they can be, they can afford to be pickier about who they hand it to. And most people tend to hand those checks to people that are like them in some way, whether a skin color, gender, or worldview. So um, for women, it's a lot harder to be a founder in tech. Despite credentials, I know PhDs, MDs, I know women with $100 million companies, it's not about performance. Um, the women with the $100 million companies, they found it from their kitchen table and they never got funding. So I suggest for women founders to consider uh, uh, what they call the zebra movement. It's called Zebras Unite. And it's about building sustainable small businesses out of tech or using tech principles, but maybe avoiding getting investment money or getting more sustainable investment money. That said, you don't need investment money if you can make revenue. So women should probably focus on early revenue first. And women company, women on uh, tech companies actually tend to outperform men's in most cases. So this isn't a matter of, like, once again, not a matter of performance. That's the first issue. Um, the second issue is that in med tech, development is very long term. Like you, you need to like take whatever development cycles you have for like, you know, a Twitter or a social media platform or something and make it 10, 10 times to 20 times. Penicillin was in the quote unquote, there's diffusion of innovation theory, which is that um, a new technology becomes, is developed by techies and then visionaries adopt it because they think it's cool and going to change the world. They might not be able to build it, but they are definitely behind it. And then it becomes no longer cool enough to be no longer new enough to be cool and not yet interesting enough to be, or not, not, not yet usable enough to be adopted by the main market. And that's called the chasm. After the chasm, pragmatists pick it up because they're like, okay, it's useful, I'll use it. But the chasm is a big place in medicine. It's 50 years for penicillin. It was 80 years for laparoscopic surgery. This is a, these are long time scales. It was 200 years for hand washing. So um, just because something's invented doesn't mean it's gonna get bought. And um, you can shorten it with, with, you know, strategic effort and good collaboration um, with a practicing clinicians. But I think that people need to, who are doing development in med tech need to have external resources, usually an external job, some other way to support themselves, because it's simply too long, usually to bootstrap. So now going back to like the topic of range versus specialization. I see for like both, they say like the case for specialization is that you're like indispensable, but also at the same time, like the case for range is that you can be indispensable. What is the like real difference between the two? Uh, sorry, do you mean in terms of clinical practice or in terms of high tech or both? I think both, just like in general, like, like you're putting your life on one specific path. For, yes. I don't know if you've seen that like pie chart where it's like, your specialization, you're like one little piece, but it's like all of it. But if it's like range, it's like the whole pie. Yeah, I think in medicine, it's terrifying. So medical information doubles every five years, like the entire body of medical knowledge, or at least it was when I was in med school, um, which means that it's simply impossible. It used to be there was like one textbook, you know, and then your mentor gave you what was in their memory. And you did that. And that was possible to master. And now there's no possibility of ever mastering the information in medicine. I mean, they're building AI, AI algorithms to try and parse these studies. You, a doctor could read every day, all day for the rest of their life and still never read the medical studies that are coming out this year. So I think that everybody's a little bit specialized in that context because nobody's getting the full picture. At my agency, we hire genius. 
So I employ geniuses from a number of different industries, um, and then we apply them in pro-social endeavors. Um, we work with neurodiversity. We work with a bunch of divergent intellects. These are people who really have a much higher capacity to master material than the average person. Um, we differentiate between a deep dive is what we call it, is when you get into something with a specialized view and you take a very close look at the lens, you master the topic, and you can you you take the time to give an informed perspective. It usually involves research papers and very structured structured thought. Um, and then we also have like what we would describe as like just give me the quick version, which is kind of the tech version, which is like you know Twitter sentences, one sentence emails. Um, I just want to overview, watch a YouTube video, and you're done. Um, I strongly believe that people should have both cognitive capacities and know the difference because it's very uh, unwise when somebody who hasn't really taken the time to master a discipline ignores the advice of an expert, somebody who spent 20, 30 years in a narrow field. Um, and it's also it's also sad when an expert fails to to learn what's happening you know, across the way that can make their life easier and apply those tools in their own problems. So um, one of the things that we try and do is we try and both respect experts, learn, listen to them, learn from them, and even be an expert in something. doesn't matter what. I honestly don't care whether it's like, you know, cat hair follicles or the political history of Iran. I have experts in both, ironically. Um, but as long as they've taken the time to master something, they're going to respect somebody else that's done the same thing. And then um, I also like really need people who are willing to like cross industries and apply insights from other areas um, where they're at, because there's so much to be done there. If you're well, if you can learn even a little bit about multiple industries, you can, you know, solutions other people just haven't even considered. So I guess like uh, moving into technology in the future, people often ask, you know, what, uh, what are some big changes you're going to see in the next 10 years? We're kind of wondering on the flip side, what do you think? Uh, that's something that's not going to change in the next 10 years? I love that question. It was genius. Um, I'm so happy about this. I, I've actually been working on that lately because um, with high tech, I, I see where areas are ripe for disruption and I try and niche my business in areas that aren't going to be disrupted. Um, I'm obsessed with uh, diurnal rhythms and preventative medicine and aspects of the body that have been conserved for 50,000 years and are unlikely to change. So, um, and especially when it comes to like tech, tech stimulation of these things. So for instance, uh, the sleep wake cycle in humans is still circadian. It's not gonna change. It's very much naturally driven and tech is disrupt is changing it. Like blue light on our screens, a lot of things are changing that. And so I'm, I'm interested in working with aspects of the body that are conserved. Um, preventative medicine and weight loss, exercise, yoga, these are all things that have been around. Yoga has been around for 5,000 years, the yoga that I practice, it's on my shirt. And uh, so I think that humans have a, a little bit of a naive view about what can be hacked. And then when it comes to a lot of our current diseases, they're resulting from a lack of appreciation for what's not going to change. So fast food is never going to make you healthy. And we have to change that. When you look into, into the tech space, you often see that the best products will come through the process of you know, extreme types of competition. Uh, we see that competition is rising as well in the medical space. We were wondering, like, what do you see as the effects of highly competitiveness affecting the tech industry, the medical industry? Like, what are your thoughts on that? This is such a brilliant question. And I don't know if, if you guys even knew how important it is. Um, 
I think that the most corrosive idea in medicine right now is that of competition. And doctors are socialized from such a young age to compete with each other, to get into medical school, to compete on exams in undergraduates and even in medical school. And you, you tend to compete with the guy next to you all the time. In residency training, you're always compared to each other. It's part of the groundwater of medicine. We don't even really consider it. Um, in, co in contrast, tech in tech and other industries, um, competition is very corrosive. It's not desirable and people notice it right away. And in even in very high competitive high-tech environments, and I've been in some crazy rat races, um, you're never competing to, with the guy next to you. The competition is always outside of the company or outside of the unit. And so um, it took me a while to lose that tendency to try and compete with the person next to me. It was just, you know, it was baked into my DNA from getting into med school. So I think um, just become aware of it when, when you're feeling competitive and in what setting and why, so that you can uh, turn it on or off depending on the setting that you're in. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, we were just also thinking about the future of surgery being very tech focused. We were just wondering what students should be aware of if they're thinking of being a surgeon. Uh, like myself, I'm interested in orthopedic surgery. I was just wondering what your take on that was. Uh, well, I think you need to like for surgery, especially you need to look at futures because surgical training takes like 12 years. It takes a really long time. Um, and so if, if there's a, a very disruptive technology coming down the pipeline, you need to know about it for your specialty and even between specialties. When I was in med school, the cardiac surgeons were all out of a job because they had failed to adopt um, percutaneous interventions. And um, suddenly there was a paper out saying it was better and for patients. And all of a sudden, all these heart surgeons had no job and 12 years into heart surgery training, which was tragic. So I, I would say that the things coming down the pipeline you need to watch for in every surgical discipline are robotic surgery, uh, non-trivial. You know, right now everybody's looking at these Da Vinci robots, but they're starting to put robots inside the bloodstream and stuff like that. So that's totally different. Um, remote surgery is non-trivial because uh, the U.S. military has something called a bod pod. You can put a soldier in a capsule and the surgeon will operate from two to 3,000 miles away, which means that outsourcing could be a problem. Right now in medical writing, you see a lot of doctors from India doing the U.S. writing of the MCAT tests and all stuff like that. And so um, you could potentially have doctors in India doing remote surgeries. Um, the other thing is tissue engineering, implantables. Um, so for orthopedic surgery, they can implant cartilage into the articular cartilage into the knee. They can grow it from the cell, implant it into the knee and fix full, full surface articular defects in the knee, which is a totally different world. And so just being aware of that is important. Medicine encroaches on surgery all the time. As medicine gets better, surgery, less people need surgery and it's always less invasive. And so, um, you know, kind of surgery either surgery needs to stay one step ahead of that or be aware of how medicine might, there might be medical therapies in a discipline that, you know, make it less common to need a surgery and therefore less surgeons necessary. The hours and diversity in surgery are likely to change significantly. Right now, the majority of the workload is still being borne by white males in their fifties, over their over 50. If you look at the actual demographics of hours worked and just kind of leave out all the other stuff, um, those guys are retiring at an astro astronomically fast rate because of they don't like the EHR. And um, also baby, baby boomers are aging out. And so the younger generation, they want to, they don't want to work the same hours. And so you'll probably see some significant changes in the way that jobs are structured and the number of hours required to be a surgeon. I know two women who job share, they hold the same surgery position. And between the two of them, they swap the position back and forth. And they're both highly satisfied. They have children. 
and it works for them. So you might see more people doing part-time like that with a partner. So now that like we're almost reaching that like 30 minute mark, what advice do you have for like students that are kind of like in our position, at female entrepreneurs or you know, female student entrepreneurs, et cetera? Um, if I was to go back, I would say that when people tell me not to do whatever I was doing, I just felt this very intense kind of like, but I have to but I have to do it. And I think if you have that, but I have to do it, you should just do it. And um, you can't regret things, you know? So it's, it's definitely worth trying for. Um, and I shouldn't say the word trying because, you know, everybody wants to, everybody wants to succeed. So I think it's definitely worth doing what you have to do to succeed and to get yourself the opportunities you need to express your individual passions. I will say that a lot of people discouraged me heavily from having a non-traditional medical career. And there's lots of things you can do in medicine that there's a lot of rules that and a lot of uh, lines in the coloring book that are just quite simply out of date and likely to be disrupted. And so if you feel a strong passion to some kind of integrated or merged career or non-traditional career, then um, pursue it. Find mentors that are successful in it um, and then look at it and then take yourself seriously. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Burbank. I really appreciate your time. And this has been the MSX podcast.